Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Penn State College Democrats. My name is Tom Sarabach, and I am the executive vice president of the Penn State College Democrats, recently elected. And I'm here today with Vincent Mang. Yep. Uh, hello. Hi, everyone. Yeah, Vincent is a general body member, and today we're going to talk about some really highbrow stuff, um, some real deep economic information and your mind is just gonna be blown by the end of it so yeah get ready yep it's gonna be a, a one heck of an economic ride well at the time this podcast is recorded some some of the information particularly regarding the um the recent tariffs may or may not change i mean this week's been quite a doozy with tariffs so yeah with donald trump too you never know what will change in like days so yeah just get ready for that yeah so speaking of tariffs um if you just want to talk about a little bit about like kind of the origin of the tariffs, um, when they came along, and kind of what has been tar- like what the recent tariffs we yeah, passed on. Pleasure. So um, basically, on the on the campaign trail, President Trump has a predilection towards while well, blaming a lot of countries, particularly China, for a massive trade deficit, and he's been repeating time and time again over the campaign that oh, China's been ripping us off, they've been stealing from us. Our trade negotiators were weak. We're getting totally been ripped off, and thus his production for tariffs. Um, recently, well, just given this year, he actually imposed a few tariffs beginning earlier earlier this year regarding um, on um, solar panels and washing washing machines. That's kind of and that could be considered as a kind of prelude to what we have right now. And also, and also, of course, recently, also recently, he passed a few a few months ago. Actually, he passed the tariffs on steel and aluminum. Approximately, I think, a 25% tariffs on steel, 10% on aluminum, ostensibly for national security reasons, which is absolutely bogus at this point, <laughs> given the fact that, one, our vast majority of our steel and aluminum imports come not from China or from Russia or from or, or hostile countries, but instead from Canada, Mexico, Japan, South Korea, the EU, all more or less allies of, allies of us. So his... National security reasoning was completely bogus, in my opinion. Yeah, and another thing too, specifically with aluminum, is that the price over um, 2017, from the start to the end of aluminum, actually skyrocketed, and that was largely due to production shifts in China because they're like the number one producer of aluminum in the world. Um, and you see those production shifts in China rapidly increase the price of aluminum. And the reality is, the passage of these tariffs a month, few months ago, not only have dire consequences for um, China's economy or our economy, but to the world economy, because you're raising the price of an incredibly crucial metal in so many things. Um, so that's just like kind of a comment on that. So you already are seeing the negative effects of those tariffs. Yeah. And ultimately, the way that the Trump administration has been posing, looking at these steel and aluminum tariffs represents a kind of, well, a lack of carelessness, but also a fundamental misunderstanding of basic macroeconomics, which we'll explain, of course, later. So moving on right now, this week, at the time of, at the, time of the recording of this podcast, has been quite a doozy. As you all, everyone, everyone knows, the, the administration has imposed a massive um, tariffs, initially a ter- tariffs on imports from China. Initially, they wanted to raise 25% on $60 billion, but recently this week, I think it was, was it Tuesday? Yeah, it was Tuesday. Um, the USTR released a report stating that it plans to impose a 25% tariffs on $50 billion worth of imports from China. On And and these, and this tariff, these tariffs will cover over 1,300 goods. Yeah, some of, the, some of the goods that um, were mentioned specifically, I believe this comes from Bloomberg, um, are a lot of medical goods, actually. So whether it's like adrenaline, malaria, testing kits, vaccines... Uh, human blood, so better get those human blood now. Um, it's going to be more expensive. Um, and a lot of uh, different industrial equipment, so that's conveyor belts, um, turbines, other like aircraft. Yeah, aircraft parts. I think when you think about aircraft parts, is that is that um, is that as I was we mentioned earlier about why Trump is targeting particularly industrial products and aircraft parts and other and goods that can be considered like capital goods, goods used in manufacturing are not necessarily consumer goods that are bought by you or I on a day-to-day, day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, but so the origin of these specific tariffs are interesting. So I, I believe you mentioned earlier, so Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this and you can expand on yeah. it, um, is the original thing that says essentially a president, whatever he feels that um, our economy is being unjustifiably burdened by another country, he is the right to pass tariffs, essentially. So these tariffs are definitely allowed. But then I think August of twenty yeah, August Yeah, I think August 14th of 2017 is when the, the administration issued like an executive order directing Robert Lice, 
Leisinger, the USTR, the United States Trade Representative, to launch a Section 301 investigation into um, into undue burden of U.S. businesses operating within China. Yeah, and it's one of those things where obviously I disagree with the Trump administration on most things, but there is a recognizable, I guess, burden on the American economy, not from where Trump says it is, but from the reality of uh, like manufacturing goods that would be patented in China um, illegally. And that's like a big deal for a lot of like U.S. tech businesses. It's something that's gone away more over time as China has become a last few years as China has become like more of a larger power in the sense that they haven't they're they're getting more regulated on this. But I think there is a, a reason to say that they are burdening our economy, but just not for the reasons. Yeah, Trump there's, says. there's definitely um very there's legitimate concerns behind these agreements. There are of course problems regarding U.S. regarding forced technological transfers as a preconditions to enter the Chinese markets, forced foreign venture agreements, equity restrictions, procurement restrictions such as. If you're operating within China, you have to produce, let's say, your Hershey, you're operating in China, you have to produce all of your Hershey kisses within China. You can't ship them from the United States. Yeah. So, so those are kind of some kind of restrictions which which the, the USTR has found to be unduly burdening China and um, burdening the U.S. And I think that those are very, very legitimate concerns advocated not only by U.S. businesses, but by also by businesses, op, by businesses, European businesses and Japanese businesses and other businesses as well. Yeah. But now, since this is the Penn State College Democrats, we're going to talk about why Trump is wrong on trade, even though there are these legitimate concerns, why the tariffs are wrong, and why his reasoning, I guess, for actually going into the tariffs is, is just flawed. Yep. So Trump, the Trump himself appears to have, throughout pretty much his entire business and political life, a very zero-sum view of the world. One person has to win, another person has to lose. There's no opportunities for really a win-win scenario. Either you're a loser or you're a winner. You can't be both. And that, of course, reflects how he views trade, particularly how he views the deficit, def- the, the, the trade deficit between the U.S. and China let's, let's, in this particular instance. He views, he thinks that the U.S.-Chinese trade deficit is a sign of weakness, is a sign that the U.S. got ripped, that, that, that China's negotiators have rigged the system against the U.S., that they were smarter and how somehow we were getting ripped off. But that's not necessarily true because, for one, trade is not zero-sum. That's, yeah. that's a fundamental, fundamental principle that we learn in all of our ma- in, your, in your basic macroeconomics 101 course classes. Yeah, I think there's definitely – so essentially with the trade deficits, the reality is that we're just buying more from them than we are um, exporting there. And it's one of those things where it sounds negative if you have a very – just basic understanding of economics, which I'm sure Donald Trump has that or less. So it sounds negative, but the reality is it's just you cannot you can't win, quote unquote, win every single trade cycle. There's realities whenever there's nations that have certain things that your country needs, you're gonna get more imports than exports. Yes. And plus and plus Tom mentioned also going off of Tom's point, Trump also doesn't seem to acknowledge the, the principle of comparative advantage, in which of course idea in which of course a country can in some cases produce everything that it, that it it desires, but that would be extremely expensive and inefficient because I don't think he acknowledges the, op- the the presence of something called opportunity cost, which is more or less the cost of doing the cost of of foregoing the best second the second best opportunities, and therefore going back to the principle of comparative advantage, nations specialize in what they're good at. So, for example, if the U.S. is good at many, at designing iPhones, for instance, while China has a competitive advantage in manufacturing phones at a low cost. So therefore, the countries would trade would trade with each other. Um, in China, uh, the U.S. will la- license some of its um, patents, intellectual properties to Ch- to China to, to to Chinese manufacturers, and the Chinese manufacturers will send us back phones. Yeah. Therefore, everyone, everyone benefits. Uh, I think something that is really <laughs> great that you have here is specifically so Trump will take this trade deficit. And I kind of um, exasperated and it expanded unrealistically to say this is the reason why we're losing jobs. This is the reason why our economy maybe not is doing as well as he wants. But the reality is, like, first, um, automation is obviously responsible for a lot of job loss. But I think you have something really great here when you talk about um, the fact that in China, it's a lot more of the – there's a 1% that exists or a 0.1% that exists. But it also there's a reality that there's a lot of people getting lifted out of poverty. Yeah, because hundreds of millions of people have li- have been lifted off out of poverty ever since the, the country was opened up by um, President Ni- by President Nixon during the 1970s, and, w- and with the continuing continuing economic reforms of Deng Xiaoping during the 1980s and 90, 90s as well, yeah. which really helped to um, lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, and that is something that is definitely beneficial. For yeah, but the West. 
the, the, the problem with what the United States and other European countries are doing is that whenever you are seeing these benefits, you're seeing them largely to the 1% or the 0.1%, which is why the deficit seems so, I think, disparaging to the majority of Americans. Yeah. So globalization, this, this goes, goes off not only to trade, but also with globalization as a whole, is that globalization in trade produces a lot of benefits. But the winners of globalization in trade, or at least in its current format, is mostly can be, can, can be considered as three groups, or at least two groups. The Asian middle classes and the top one percent in in your in the West, and I think that if we going on moving forward, we're going to have to um, perhaps rewrite some of the rules of globalization. But that we can we'll discuss that later. Yeah, and then so Vincent, do you want to expand on how the tax bill will actually exasperate these yeah. two deficits? Yeah, so technically, it's something that I don't think that Trump realizes or understands is that the tax bill that the Republic the Congress has passed back late last year will actually exacerbate or otherwise increase the trade deficit because for one getting a huge giving a such a huge tax cut to 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 more or less the super rich and to a vast majority of society will in fact um, increase our national debt debt and of course and of course the basic principle of ma- of macroeconomics is that national savings must equal national investment and since the trade the tax cut does reduce reduces national savings there has to be some other ways to finance to make up for that discrepancy or that loss. And therefore, what happens is you see cap foreign capital inflows with it inflows into the United States, which of course pushes the demand for the dollar up. And if the dollar appreciate the demand of the dollar goes up, its price increases. The price as and if a, if a price of a currency more or less appreciates relative to the other ones, that actually makes U.S. exports less competitive in the global market, and therefore our trade deficit will increase. Yeah, and that's something that's very interesting because we told the average American, like even myself, if you're like, oh, if the dollar goes up, that's good for American the American economy, well, correct? And they'd say, oh yes, but there's actually a lot more nuance. Yeah, to it. like having a strong currency. In terms of exports, is not very good because yeah. it, of course, if it, if it costs, if it costs, um, is more expensive to buy things in dollars than it is, let's say, euros or peso or or Mexican pesos or whatnot. Yeah, then it's not. Really I think good. it's important to point out that so there's other advantages of having a strong dollar, but the reality is that Trump is focusing so much on exports, but his own. Bills, his own reasoning is working against him on the one thing he seems to care about in the economy. It's just, I think it's very ironic. Yeah, I mean, for the administration that seems to be all over the place, completely um, contradicting itself, this is probably one of the biggest sticklers. And I think that, in the worst part, is that he keeps, he, he refuses to acknowledge it, but given his character, I don't think he'll ever be willing to acknowledge yeah. himself. So moving on to, I guess, Trump again shooting himself in the foot and kind of pushing away his base. So just talking more about ta- tariffs. Um, I think there's a lot of things to say whenever tariffs actually, like, again, they tax American businesses. They negatively affect American businesses and consumers. Yeah. So more or less, I mean, tariffs as a whole, even though people like to claim they do work, they work to protect industries, domestic industries from foreign competition. What in reality is, is in reality, they're just a tax on consumers because the cost of, let's say, the cost of a tariff to import raw materials or even goods from, from other countries will be will be factored in into the cost of production, and now we pass on to the consumers, which will of course be detrimental, given the fact that the U.S. is such given that given that the fact that consumption makes up sixty eight percent of the U.S. economy. Yeah, and it's going to be very. I mean, sixty eight percent of U.S. GDP. That yes, yeah. it's going to be very interesting to see. I've seen some reports of um, either Republican officials or more like right leaning, very um, economically conservative people. Um, kind of talking down Trump here and saying that these tariffs might very well be a reason that a lot of voters go to the polls in the midterm elections if the information can get to them, I should say, because it is, again, very detailed, very economic. But the reality is that you're going to see consumers paying more, and the average American obviously does not like that. So I think you could see this kind of end support of the blue wave moving further. And it's one of those actions where you see these tariffs, and they're 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 essentially not unnecessary. I want to say they're unnecessary. But they're an extra step that Trump necessarily didn't even have to do. Yeah. Um, these tariffs are perhaps the most bluntest, yet arguably the most dangerous and probably most counterproductive ways of advancing his goals. Because now a lot of Republican members, of, well, administration officials, as Wilbur Ross, have come out and say, these tariffs, we're not actually going to implement them. We may or may not implement them. We're just using them as a bargaining tool in negotiation with the Chinese to either lower our trade deficits and or 
seek more favorable, save more favorable, favorable business conditions in China. But I don't think that that the Chinese government will necessarily capitulate to those demands, yeah. given the fact that they hold a lot more cards in the U.S. Yeah, and, and I US think realizes. overall too, whenever you're throwing around tariffs in a conversation, you're saying, "Oh, it's just a bargaining chip." That just that sets a deadly precedent for other nations essentially to do the same. Maybe not to us, maybe not to China, but just in the future, if you look at these massive economies throwing around tariffs like they're no big deal, you're gonna, that's a dangerous precedent. I think it also really threatens the World Trade Organization as well. Yeah, the WTO created during the late during the mid to mid nineties really is a cornerstone of more a cornerstone and expression of the free trade order which persisted since. Since, since the end of the Second World War and has been a pillar in, in ensuring um, global peace as it's far more profitable and some would say peaceful to trade with your neighbors rather than to trade, to trade um, bananas with your neighbors rather than to trade bullets. Yeah. So um, I think we should touch on, though, definitely the legitimate concerns there are with being a United States citizen, being part of the United States economy and looking at the rise of China internationally and economically. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think... What's the first statistic? Um, there? So basically, um, so just 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 to set out some of the facts, China has more or less back in 2014 has surpassed the U.S. economy by purchasing power parity, which is a measure that economists use that more or less um, equal equalizes the exchange rates between the currencies in order to compare a similar basket of goods that can be purchased at purchase and so so by so by purchasing power parity the Chinese economy has already exceeded that of the US and also in other forms such as exports savings and other metrics as well so looking looking at that it's important to realize that the United States as a whole while it's still the largest economy by real and nominal GDP in the future there is a very grave and really and very real possibility that that we could be eclipsed by a um, rising superpower. Yeah, and I think whenever the eclipse comes, if, if it's inevitable, I think the worst part of it is because I think there, there's a lot to be said about being the second best economy in the world. Like, I, I don't, it, it's going to be negative when you're the first one, but I think there's a lot to be said in terms of positive. You're still not doing that terribly, but I think the idea that American politicians, whether they're right or left, could reach and essentially fear-monger in the American citizens that we're getting surpassed, we're getting eclipsed, and use that to get votes even though their solutions won't help. It is mildly terrifying. And specifically, like attacking the idea of globalization. Because the reality is that globalization has numerous benefits to people all over the world. Yeah. But they might be able to demonize globalization to an extent. And Donald Trump is already starting to do this, where it negatively affects the American people's opinion of it, and American people vote differently. Yeah, because – and also – and also Trump's attacks on on various international institutions, as well such as the World Trade Organization. In fact, he's refused to um, appoint judge. Uh, well, he, the USTR has refused to appoint judges to the WTO's appellate court. And by September, if there is not a, if there is no appointments, there will be only three members, three judges out of seven. And that's not going to be good, given the fact that the WTO handles pretty much a lot of trade disputes. And without those judges, it's going to slow the process, slow the entire system down. And may or may not cause the system to collapse, but that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, let's hope not. Um, so we do you want to touch on briefly like some other tariffs that might be coming in, some more retaliation from China, some things like that? Okay, so yeah. So as we as, as we know on Wednesday, um, China actually announced retaliatory tariffs. Well, they threatened to announce retaliatory tariffs, approximately the same amount, $50 billion, on 120 yeah, 228 imports from the United States. Most of these imports are largely um, fruits, dried fruits, Nuts, so pistachios, almonds, and also some other stuff like jingshan, which actually is interesting. There's an interesting article in the Financial Times the, um, the other day, which talks about um, which talks about the effects of of these tariffs on American jingshan. So apparently, jingshan is like, as you know, a, a kind of um, her a kind of root that's often used yeah. in like teas and whatnot. Apparently, it's one of the biggest producers of jingshan within the United States is actually Wisconsin. Yeah. So these ter- these retaliatory tariffs, if implemented, would definitely hurt Wisconsin's um, for her farmers in Wisconsin, and, and that's something interesting to note as well because these tariffs these retaliatory tariffs by China are designed to target items and political uh, designed to target imports and politically salient states such as Wisconsin and Kentucky so Wisconsin so cranberries is is on the list and cran and Wisconsin is a big producer of cranberries and guess who's and guess who's a famous member of the house from Wisconsin Paul Ryan yeah that's what I was about to say is that's whatever you're going to see this turn 
Because I think with the American tariffs, we talk about it, it's a lot of industrial goods, it's a lot of medical goods, which are important, but to the average consumer, they don't impact them as much. But these tariffs that China's threatened to pass, essentially, whether it's on ginseng, it's on nuts, dried fruits, wine, cranberries, pork, pork like there's so much that's being covered that will A, directly affect American consumers, and B, will affect American consumers in specific states. And as messed up as it is, I think it's one of those things that could benefit the Democratic Party just based off of the fact of how blunders this is, that this is, that this is coming from a Republican side. The fact that these are important swing states that are um, kind of on the edge of going Democrat at any time anyways. And it'll be kind of interesting to see whether there's a reaction. Yeah, and definitely to add, 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 that, add that to your point, Tom. So and I think today in Project Syndicate, Joseph Stiglitz, a, notable, a, a, professor, a professor at Columbia University and a Nobel laureate, he was also chief... Uh, chief of 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 the, of the Council of Economic Advisors under Bill Clinton, in his, in an op-ed pu- pu- published for Project Syndicate, he wrote wrote that the Republican Party was once the um to paraphrase him was once pretty much the party of free trade, but it seems that in in their in attempts to stand with sol- in solidarity in solidarity with Trump, it seems to abandon abandon abandoned that idea, just like how they abandoned fiscal responsibility when they yeah. pass a tax bill. And my thing is, too, is it's, it's a weird kind of difference. I think international free trade, there's, there's numerous benefits yeah. when it's international because the reality is, like, we're talking about how negative these tariffs are now. Whenever you kind of mess with the international trade, whether we're exporting soybeans or um, whatever else, you'll see, like, ripple effects in other economies that can result in depressions and recessions. So I think free trade internationally is what's beneficial. And then in the United States, you want to see more economic regulation. You want to make sure that big oil companies or energy companies um, are possibly facing like environmental regulations if you're the Democratic Party. And there, there's there's a lot of regulations inside the United States that might be beneficial, but it's kind of crazy that the beneficial kind of free trade that Republicans, I guess, would talk about is what Trump is going against. It's just very ironic again. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, but it just shows you that um, that there is one party whose intellectual le- understandings and leanings are definitely well, they're they're, they're <laughs> easily compromisable. Let's say. Yeah. Oh, and just a correction. So the, the retaliation of tariffs is actually on one hundred and six products. There was actually another tariff announced on Monday, which would which which would be implemented. And is designed to counteract the steel and aluminum tariffs. Yeah, and some of the, the people affected by this are soybean producers, which may not be like I guess it's a lot of factory farms that would be affected by that. But like whether it's like there are a few other things like car makers, um, aircraft makers like Boeing, and that's the reality too. Is whenever you see Donald Trump or other Republicans preaching to these middle class blue collar workers that do make cars in Detroit or Michigan. And they're promoting that they're going to get their jobs back and they're going to keep the factories open. But this is just another thing that negatively affects those individuals and pushes them further and further from being in the middle class. Yeah. And the fact that the funny thing is that despite all of these um, pretensions that, that Trump is for the working man, his party has consistently voted against retraining, re- worker retraining programs, programs that can actually help displace workers, displace by both automation and by globalization to help train for new jobs. And only, and he, yeah, yeah, he claims to be the, the the candidate of the working man. I yeah. mean, you can't be cons- you can't claim yourself to be the candidate of the working man if your if your party's efforts are to say, well, if you lost your job, too bad, yeah. you better pull yourself better pull yourself by your yeah. boots. So while we're fear mongering, let's talk about Made in China twenty twenty five. I okay. think you want to explain that really quick. Yeah. So ultimately, um, b- b- behind these. The concerns of these tariffs, particularly the ones raised by, uh, <clears throat> especially the one raised recently, is that is that the U.S. is very con- the U.S. and Trump, well, the U.S. in general is very concerned about an industrial policy called Made in China 2025. is an industrial plan launched in 2015. It is designed to make China a world leader in high tech manufacturing. It was actually modeled after um, a similar industri- an industrial plan. From Germany, called Industry 4.0, which focused a lot on automation, digitalization, IoT, more or less incorporating that into the country's um, powerful and strong and robust um, manufacturing plants. But moving on back to, but going back to Made in China 2025, it will target 10 categories, categories ranging from advanced information technology, robotics and automated machine tools, aircraft, aircraft components, maritime vessels, pharmaceuticals and advanced medical devices. Electric generation, new energy vehicles, pretty much like EVs, hydrogen-powered cars, and engineering equipment, agricultural machinery, and so on and so forth. 
So, so as you can see, that's a pretty big um, and ambitious list basket of items that they seek to yeah. they, they seek, seek to seek leadership in, and we should definitely be on the watch for that in the future. Yeah, and some of those categories, just to highlight, like when you're talking about advanced information technology or robotics, you know, that's kind of the United States' bread and butter. Yeah. When it comes to our exports to the rest of the world, it's, it's things like the iPhone where it's, we are designing and programming kind of the future of a lot of um, advanced information technology. And China is actively working with this program to kind of beat us at it. And I think another thing to highlight, um, when you're talking about maritime vessels and marine engineering equipment, you know, this has a lot of impacts um, specifically with the situation that is still kind of persisting in the South China Sea where there, it's one of those things where if this would never happen, but if the United States and China were to engage in naval warfare, obviously the United States at this point would win. Yeah. And I don't think it would ever happen because both economies, both people leading country, well, okay, Xi Jinping's not insane, Donald Trump is, nevertheless. Um, but it's one of those things where they're actually working to kind of pick out categories that we are very successful in and kind of target them. And it might be a coincidence, it might just be, oh, those are the categories that are important, but it's definitely something to watch. Yeah, definitely. Like Tom mentioned, um, a lot of these technologies not only have important civilian applications as uh, as civilian applications, but they also could be um, used in a military setting, which we will talk discuss later. Because one of the core principles of Made in China 2025 is something called civil slash military fusion, which more or less states that technologies developed in either the civilian or military or defense sectors should be shared with each other. So in other words, if a technology is developed in, let's say, for military purposes, under Made in China 2025, there should be a purpose for that in, in the civilian sector and vice versa. And that is definitely some, something interesting because very recently, I think in today's New York Times, there's actually published an article about how, um, how, 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 how in the U.S., Google's has been working with the Pentagon on a project called Project Maven, which, which seeks to more or less use an AI machine, develop an AI machine learning algorithms to detect, put, to pull images from drone feeds and photos. Ultimately, oh, and, oh, and, Recently, a lot of Google employees were not happy with this at all, given the fact that they don't want their softwares to be used and for warfare. So actually, that's 3,000, over 3,000 actually sent, sent, signed and sent a letter to the CEO, to Sooner, to, 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 to the CEO, asking Google to cancel the project. In contrast, we see in China, in, in China in 2025, where there is no real gap between civilian and military's um, input, impetuses regarding AI. Yeah. I think that's an important difference. And it's one of those things where it's definitely like a cultural difference as well, where you have such a, I think it's a result of uh, kind of the, I guess, central planning of the government, where in China you do have more of a kind of um, nationally centered focus, yeah, more government more focus. Central, more centralized. And you really don't want to go against the CCP if you, well, want to, if, it's, if you know what's good for you. Yeah. Otherwise, if you do go against the party, things will not be very, um, life will not be very Yeah, friendly. those Google employees that sent that letter, if they were in China, they would just be like, we yeah. hear about them. Yeah, they, it would be pretty much censored and silenced. Yeah. Um, so I think another, another thing that's very interesting about this is kind of their steps after 2025. Um, so like in 2025, they hope to approach Germany, Japan, and fat manufacturing when they're industrialized. So that's reaching out to other, or reaching the point where you're kind of surpassing other major economies. But after that, it gets a little bit, um, and then in the years following that, it gets like a, it ramps up to a degree. Yeah. So ultimately, at yeah, twenty twenty five, like Tom mentioned, they want to approach Germany and Japan in manufacturing when they industrialize. By twenty thirty, they wish to become a second tier manufacturer. In other words, and then by twenty forty five, become a first tier manufacturer of innovative industries, world class technology, and industry systems. And closely related to the three step plan is there is some is is there plans to have. Uh, is there ambitious plans to set domestic market share targets for domestic for domestic market shares of certain goods by certain dates? So, for example, under under the plan, they wish to have the 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 uh, under the plan, the China wishes to have wishes that domestic firm domestic new energy vehicles will have an eighty percent market share by twenty twenty five, while the foreign share will be up to ten percent. And interesting note that China controls much of the world's cobalt cobalt supply, and cobalt is a, is a crucial component in manufacturing lithium ion batteries. And in the future, lithium ion batteries will be used to make or will be used in electric vehicles, EVs. And yeah. given the fact that the economists, I think, um, 
late last year actually ran a covers saying calling for the stating predicting the death of the internal combustion engine and the rise of EVs. So you can argue that it's, it's definitely a strong argument by saying whoever controls EVs could control the mode of transportation in the future. Yeah, and so like that's China right now, so we got to watch out for that. Yeah. Now here's the major question when we're talking about made in China 2025 is will it work? Will this actually initiative be successful in making a China's economy uh, superior to most of the world and then eventually superior to ours? Um, I think that looking at, looking at this, it's perhaps it's possible. They do have some ambition, do have some pretty um, good, they, they have pretty deep pockets and deep pockets and smart minds behind these projects. They have they've invested hundreds of billions of dollars into R&D at a time in which the US has actually cut back on R&D. Yeah. In fact, I think research and development as a percentage percentage of GDP is actually one of the lowest has has been one of the lowest since the since the end of this end of the Second World War, so that's not good for the, good for us. But going back in the but going back but money and and smart and smarts doesn't mean everything. In fact, someone would argue that one for one China's Plans, industrial plans have pretty patchy history. They don't necessarily, they don't necessarily hit all of their targets. And second of all, is that can we really have innovation without the need for freedom, without the need to have um, to have the freedom of speech, assembly, rights to protest, et cetera, et cetera, yeah, and so on? And that's such an interesting philosophical question because if you look at the major developments um, in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s that made the American technology industry and the internet such um, great. I guess, economic drivers and national drivers to the United States is it really is the result of just individuals kind of, I don't want to say doing whatever they want, but if you look at people like Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, yeah, they are Steve aren't, Jobs, Bill Gates, and, uh, and, and, develop, and also maybe even early entrepreneurs like the ones who developed some microsystems, Intel, all, all those people. Yeah, and, and they did it for different reasons. Like it's like one of those things where it's, it's almost a coincidence in the sense that it became such a, a driver of the American economy where they're really doing it for almost personal reasons. They're doing it because they have freedom. So it's, it's such a philosophical question is, can the same innovation happen under an authoritarian regime? Yeah. And because one thing is that, also as Tom's point, is that a lot of the technologies that were, that they, they, the, the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs would go on to pioneer and really develop into the products, into the innovative products and services that we see today, were actually first engendered by the government, actually preceded by the government through R&D funding through, through the National Science Foundation. But going back to, but going back to your earlier point about whether or not do we need, this, is freedom a prerequisite for long-term innovation? I think that in many ways, well, I think it is, but what we're seeing now in China is definitely putting that assumptions to the test. Yeah, well, I think too, first of all, I, I certainly hope that freedom is necessary for innovation because I like freedom. But nevertheless, I think with China, you're, what you're seeing too is I think having an authoritarian regime works well whenever you're catching up. Yeah. Catching so essentially, whenever somebody's already laid the groundwork and you're kind of following their path, that you're kind of taking some steps around the path to become where they are, I think it, it, it is a lot easier um, to apply authoritarian regimes. But I think it's like one of those things where can they reach the very pinnacle, the very top, and maintain that position? Because you need innovation to do that. Once you reach a certain point, you need that kind of creativity. So it's very interesting. I guess we'll see, uh, hopefully through our lifetimes, whether or not China's authoritarian regime um, kind of allows us to happen or, or if they recognize the issue and take a step back, which I don't, I don't, I wouldn't think would happen just because of the general idea that once you have a lot of power, you don't really give it up. Yeah, the problem but, with power is that once you once you have well, in, in the context of, of the of the Chinese government with regards to well, Xi Jinping and his recent um, yeah. ab- abolition of term limits, is the fact that even though he's accrued all those power. It's becoming increasingly more. It may it may become more and more difficult for his subordinates, for his advisors, to to speak out against him and to say and to advise and to caution him and or advise him against dangerous or dangerous courses of action or even to point out mistakes. Yeah. And therefore, there runs a, a serious risk that he that he may make a dangerous mistake, and no one will be able to prevent him yeah. from doing that. I think it's another thing when we talk about will China made in China twenty twenty five work. Considering the U.S. response, you know, what would the U.S. do that would possibly prevent this from happening? And I think a great example of um, what the U.S. could do to kind of defend this is the idea, <coughs> excuse me, of gathering trade allies, essentially going around the world. Because the United States has so many allies. China, because of their kind of um, muddled history through the 20th century, does not. Yeah, they, yeah, they only have one treaty ally, and that's North Korea. But I don't think North Korea will help China in either projecting power in East or Southeast Asia or Asia Pacific, not or help them in any sort of trade disputes yeah. given the dismal state of, of 
North Korea. Yeah. So the United States has all these allies that they could really work with and trade with to make sure this kind of doesn't succeed. But I think the big issue is if you're looking at what Donald Trump's doing, whether it's getting rid of NAFTA or all these other harmful practices where he's essentially damaging our relationships with allies and especially damaging our economic ties to our allies, he's kind of almost like fighting against us. Here. Yeah. Like Trump – he he's a better he under he he only seems to acknowledge one sort of power and now it appears to be mostly hard power the power of military force the powers of F-15s boots on the ground the M1 the Abrams tank etc etc he doesn't seem to acknowledge that one of America's greatest strengths arguably greater than that of China is our soft power our ability to attract people from around the world but also our abilities and our and our alliances that were of course crucial in helping us win the Second World War and maintaining peace. And, in, and helping to face down the Soviet Union yeah. during the Cold War. And I think, too, when it comes to that, we talked about this a few weeks ago on the podcast, but the idea of using soft power is, again, not appealing to Trump. You said it. But it's one of those things where you're seeing it even in the State Department where they're kind of not refusing to use diplomacy, but they're not hiring as many officials as we would like. They're not kind of, again, working to make peaceful, really strong allied bonds. That doesn't really make – that's not a sentence. But nevertheless, they're not doing this. They're not utilizing all of our soft power, which you mentioned, has just been so crucial to our success. Yeah. And the fact that Trump's been eviscerating soft power while China in many ways has been cultivating it through a variety of initiatives, most notably that of the Belt and Road Initiative. But that's that's a topic for another – a whole other topic for another day. But then it's in the long-term solution. I really like that you mentioned these um, specific ones. So I just want – I would love for you to talk about like some of the ideas you have for a long-term solution when it comes to an open immigration policy for skilled workers, like a stronger social safety net, more education, because those are just fundamental tenets of the Democratic yeah. Party. And it's very interesting that they would be a solution to this specific problem. Yeah, because one thing for certain is that this is not just a problem with ch- problem to count perhaps alleviate, alleviate or counteract some of the effects of made in China in 2025, but it speaks to a greater issue. And that is, how does the United States operate in a 21st century in a globalized environment. Because one thing we've seen in globalization is that old old assumptions about job certainty and, and a need for education are disappearing. Now, jobs are more and more or less based on independent contracting. And education has moved away from a pure four-year college degrees or maybe some graduate, postgraduate work, and then you're done, to a mode of more um, of more lifelong learning. So going back to this is that ultimately, if the US were to maintain its strength and maintain a strong economy for the 21st century, it would have to, first and foremost, invest in its people. Um, there's a, a, from, Joseph, from Joseph, Joseph Stiglitz's recent book, published, I mean, late last year in 2007, November 2017, Globalization is Discontents Revisited, he talks about a good concept called protection without protectionism. And I think that that itself is an idea that can be applied directly to the Democratic Party's political agendas for the future. Yeah. I definitely really agree with that 100%. And it's if you, even if you look at France, specifically what Emmanuel Macron's doing there, he's not his approval rating isn't super high. He's maybe not doing the best job. But what he is doing, it's something that he's very passionate about and seems to be successful, is getting more scientists into France, becoming more of, I guess, a, a, a global power in that sense where you bring in the strongest people for your own economy. Yeah. And that's really how you get a strong one. I think Donald Trump is just kind of rejecting that idea altogether. Yeah, the most talented, the most um, well-educated people – and this is just a good quote. So I was so in a recent art, in an article from the New Yorker published back in January, um, they quote 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 Eric Schmidt, a former the former chairman of Alphabet, who still sits on the NC and former CEO of Google, but and he still sits on the board of Alphabet, as saying that some of the best computer scientists actually come from Iran. So so going going in the future maybe is perhaps a a good interest within the United States to open up to Iran so we can attract some more yeah. talent. And then another um, solution you mentioned as well is just greater social safety net. Yeah. So one thing for certain is that we know, looking at other countries, the Nordic countries, Sweden, Norway, and um, Denmark, is that they have a strong, especially in the case of Sweden, they have a strong social safety net, and yet they still have, still have large rates of entrepreneurship. In fact, in fact, looking at looking at, at some statistics, there's actually a higher rate of entrepreneurship in Sweden than there actually is in the United States. Yeah, and it's one of those things where this is, like, I guess, not evidence, but it's more of a psychological thing is if you have a greater social safety net, you have universal health care or better um, national health care system, you have paid family leave. It's one of those issues where there's, there's two kind of tenets to it. In a sense, you're not afraid to fail. You're not afraid to fail. This is a big one because, yeah. it, because unlike in a system where – 
let's say your healthcare is tied to your employment, there's a very strong incentive for you not to fail because if you lose your job, you lose your health care, and if you lose your health care, you may or may not ultimately lose your life down the, down the line. But on, on the other hand, if you have a social safety net, if you have some guarantee that there is health care, regardless of you, if not you have a job, there is a greater incentive, that prevents a greater incentive for you to take risks. Yeah. And ultimately, we need more risk-taking, more entrepreneurship, especially given the fact that the U.S. economy, I think, overall is dom- is becoming a bit too uncompetitive and too dominated by the yeah. big firms. And when it comes to being uncompetitive, I think another issue as well is the idea that you – know, I guess this is an international scale because you are seeing this in Europe where you have an aging workforce yeah. and you're kind of they're kind of going away. And I think a big part of that, especially in Europe, is the idea that uh, people just aren't – like, I guess, reproducing enough. But I think something to aid, I guess, reproduction is the idea as well um, of paid family leave in the United States specifically because it's one of those things where if you're a working individual and you have a child, you know, it's going to interrupt your work right now. You're not going to be able to maintain the same pace you are. Um, But if you introduce paid family leave for both the mother and the father or whatever um, the uh, gender-specific parents are, you introduce the ability to kind of maintain your stride and continue – um, your own success while building in the future a new workforce. Yeah, and that's like Tom mentioned those are really great points because um, even though there appears even though the fertility rates across Western countries have been on the decline, those can be can be alleviated through a combination of both neonatalist policies and immigration as well. Yeah, but that's something we can discuss for a different day. Yeah, economists ran a very good cover, a good cover article and briefing a few weeks back called um, yep, tech, called uh, the battle for the battle for digital supremacy, U.S. versus Chinese tech, more or less, and and it argues that and definitely provides a very um, eye opening view into the into the world of of how the, how China is actually on some fronts, most notably that of artificial intelligence, is actually expected to overtake the U.S. by twenty by 2020 or 2030-ish because of two things. For one, for, so as you know, in order to develop art, good artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, etc., you need two things. One is access to data, data of all different types, all different forms, all different varieties, and, you, and China has hit, hit a big pool of data. Why? Because... There's approximately 800, yeah. 800 million users of the internet in China. There's actually more users of the internet in China than there are people in Germany. There's two times, well, 800 million? Yeah, 800 There's million. two times the amount of the American population yeah. that users of the internet in China. Wow. Yeah. So one, you have access to a huge base of, of data, 800 million internet users. Second of all, lacks privacy laws. Even though theoretically some of China's privacy laws should be as strict as those of Europe, in reality, the China, in reality, the Chinese government and firms are not necessarily privacy is not their first concern. Yeah. So, 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 so first, a big access to data. Second of all, is the high proportion of STEM graduates within China uh, compared to the U.S. U.S. graduates. Approximately um, eight, approximately six percent of all tertiary graduates in China are actually STEM majors, while in the U.S. is actually less than two percent. So. <laughs> So ultimately, in order to develop strong AI capabilities, you need large amounts of data and a strong, strong background, either in stats, comp sci, mathematics, engineering, etc. Yeah. And then what do you think the impact of China beating us in artificial intelligence? So I think artificial intelligence is there's definitely a wide ranging impact because right now there's been a big push for AI across businesses. In fact, I think this week's edition of The Economist talks about talks about AI spy, talks about the, the role of AI in businesses and how that will disrupt everything. So, for example, according to McKinsey, there's a pro- they, est- they estimate that there's approximately $1.3 trillion worth of, of global gains from just introducing AIs into global supply chains. And apparently, uh, and apparently it's, it's, it's been big enough that even McKinsey recently complete acquired a data, a data analysis firm because they because they, they want to incorporate more AIs in their, in, into their consulting yeah. practices. Um, an important part is that Chinese technology in and of itself isn't necessarily harmful. In fact, there are some good forms of Chinese technology, such as if you look at the Huawei Mate 10 Pro phone, some of they actually it actually has a special chip, a, G, a special processor, the MPU, which is designed specifically for artificial intelligence calculations. But, 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 but that's beside the point. But the point is that technology of itself isn't good or bad, evil or benevolent or et cetera, whatever, whatever dichotomies you'd like to use of good and bad. But 
Techno Systems, as the economist points out, does because Techno Systems includes not only the technology in itself, but also its op- but also the operating principles, the software, the values which underpin those underpin underpin those forms of technologies behind themselves. And I think that itself can present a big challenge to the U.S. because even though the recent scandal involving Cambridge Analytica and the fact that in fact that what Farhan Manju of the New York Times calls the fearful five. Like three or five of like Google, Amazon, the Fang Group, yeah, Fang Group, yeah, yeah. Fang Group. They love to suck up our data. In the end, they're still immersed in out. There's, there's, they're still immersed in the idea of doing good and doing well. Yeah. Well, on the other hand, for the Chinese companies, particularly the BAT, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent, they're well connected with the Chinese government, and the purpose of the Chinese government is mostly to assert control, and they're not necessarily interested in into privacy. But going back to techno systems is that overall the challenge faced by the challenge that China poses to the United States is not only technological and economic, but ideological itself. It's a pretty much all in three package. It's a challenge we have not seen since arguably since ever, because the Soviet Union made it presented an ideological and military and military challenge, but they weren't really that much of an economic challenge to us. Because I mean, no. I'm pretty sure people in the U.S. were clamoring to buy like made in the Soviet Union cars yeah. or anything. The Soviet Union was their economic was specifically inward too. Yeah, they purposely didn't go outside their own country. Yeah, they, they, they practice a, They tend to practice a pretty strict form of autarky. But um, but and and during the 1980s, Japan presented a challenge, a technological and economic challenge to the U.S. But it was a U.S. ally, and it shared our and shared democratic values such as the U.S. However, what we're seeing right now is that China presents and presents an ideological an ideological challenge because it explicitly advocates a different form of development for a lot of countries, and that's in respect for different values and world systems, which. In and of itself sounds benevolent, but once you look deeply into it, it's actually just an excuse to justify less democratic practices and authoritarianism. Yeah. Now, do you think that the United States is capable of kind of fending, I don't want to say it's an attack, but fending off um, China here? Do you think that if the United States probably like did the proper R&D, they could um, prevent China from surpassing them? No, I think the U.S. definitely has a strong footing. I mean, we develop a pretty much a, a lot of the, of, the, of the AI techniques that China now uses, and we're still a leader in, the, in terms of the number of papers published, the number of patents filed. So we definitely have a strong lead. However, there is a great possibility that we could squander this early lead, like early lead by cutting short of our investment in education, by not reforming our immigration systems to allow highly educated workers to stay and work within the U.S., and by not focusing more and investing more in STEM education. Yeah, and again, those are all... I mean, I believe STEM is, is kind of party neutral. I think both parties... Yeah, both parties agree too. But ultimately, it comes down to more education, yeah. increased funding for R&D, and reforming our, our immigration policies. Yeah, and, it, and if you look at, workers. I guess, the Republican um, kind of main party base and kind of their beliefs, specifically like looking at charter schools, for example, you know, they're so in support of something that essentially limits the average American's ability to get a quality of education. And the reality is that this is the exact opposite of what we need because it's not a war, but it, it, there's certainly a battle for supremacy in international economies right now. And we need the proper um, kind of ammunition. And it's kind of messed up to refer to people as ammunition, but the reality is that we're just not supplying it right now. And, the, and what we are doing is largely the results of democratic development. Yeah. And, lar- and, and a lot of the benefits that we have seen thus far, at least all the benefits that we have accrued from our technological developments were investments made 20, 30, 40, even 50 years prior. Yeah. And and we don't make those investments today and we don't understand that money invested, let's say, tomorrow may not actually pay off until decades later. It's still important to make some investments because if you don't make some investments, then you're not going to have you won't be able to reap dividends yeah. because if you never if you never invest, you're not going your 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 rate of return is going to be zero. Yeah, that's some business for you. I think too. Another thing is with the Republican Party, it's a weird shift because I think even if going back to like to really far in the past, but even like Ronald Reagan, I think would be a good recent example. Yeah. Republican president who I might disagree with him on a lot of things, but he certainly prioritized technology. Even to a fault when it comes to issues like the Star Wars program. Yes, yes, yes. But like he's still prioritizing these like ridiculous investments to the future and facilitating it. And you're just kind of seeing a re- major shift away from that. Yeah, I think a large portion can be due to the fact that a great number of the Republican Party at this point believes that government is a problem. In fact, in fact, they said they're now believing 
if you believe in like people like Glenn Beck, that the U.S. pretty much got rich in spite of government, which looking back at his hist- looking back at our history is definitely not true because looking back at the 1940s or 1950s or even the 60s, where the U.S. made large investments in its R&D through the National Science Foundation, we did not become a great power as we did. We didn't become as wealthy as we did by not but by a, by, an, by a government that was pretty much laissez-faire. Yeah, definitely. And I think a great example of that going way back is um, FDR. Specifically, yeah. whenever the economy was really sinking, he invested in like all kind of work programs for the American people and other things like that. And there has been, again, Republicans um, in the foreign in the past that have followed that, whether it's Eisenhower kind of um, investing a lot in America's highway system. If I'm yeah, national highways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, Eisenhower on national highway system. I definitely think just overall, it's incredibly important to invest in education, invest in technology, and infrastructure, because, of course, and infrastructure yeah, because yeah, yeah, because um, because one thing is that the U.S. has been pretty much falling behind a lot of infrastructure investment. We our highway systems built during the fifties and can use continuously updated, updated and maintained through the decades is not necessarily may not necessarily be well suited for the twenty first century, given the fact that we're gonna to have to see a lot more volume of cars on the road. We're going to have a lot more trucks on the road as especially when, when um, self driving truck comes into the scene. And our the, the conditions of our railway systems, even in comparison to the European countries, is pretty dismal to say the least. Yeah. Let me let's be honest. I'll, I'll be honest. It's, it's I, I don't want to meet if any, anyone who takes the who works in the rail, railroad, but our railroads are pretty much like third world, to be honest. I mean, the Excel Express is far slower than what you compared to the, compared to a comparable um, bullet a train in China. Yeah, I think too. It's another one of those empty promises of the Trump campaign and of the Republican Party, where they really wanted to reach blue collar. Americans, middle-class Americans, low-class Americans, and say, hey, we're going to invest in infrastructure. We recognize this is the problem. Like, we're going to make sure we invest in it. And it's just something that just has not been done so far in the Trump administration whatsoever. Yeah. And, and well, and their ideas of investment in infrastructure consist largely of, like, pu- public-private partnerships. But the biggest problem is that the problem with pr- public-private partnerships is that is that when you have the private sector is funding half of the budget, uh, half, half the cost – then you ultimately you have to develop, develop incentives for them. But the biggest problem with infrastructure, or at least the biggest idea behind infrastructure, is that infrastructure is a public good. It's a good that's provided by that should be provided by the government because it benefits everyone. It's non it's non exclusive. It's non rival 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 rivalrous. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why. I'm yeah, not saying that wrong. Yeah. but 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 anyway, um, infrastructure is something that should be provided by the government. Because it is um, because because very often you the private sector will, will tend to underinvest yeah. in places where it may not seem like you may need a road out there, but in reality you do. Yeah. Um, well, it's six thirty. Our time in this room is about up. But so again, I've said this before, but I think this is probably the, one of the best podcasts we've had. Probably the most informative to me. I hope you enjoyed it, listeners. Um, and also, thank you for listening. Again, I'm always surprised at the amount of people that listen to this because. I, I probably wouldn't take the time if it wasn't my voice or my friend's voice. Well, yep, you, you're. Uh, well, it's actually it was, it was a pleasure talk, pleasure speaking on this podcast, Tom. And perhaps we'll get to speak again in the future. Yeah, let's hope so. Yeah, okay. Hope so. Yep. Um, thank you for listening. Make sure you register to vote. Make sure you tell your friends to register to vote. Make sure you vote. Blue Wave 2018. Yeah. And if you haven't subscribed to this, please subscribe to our podcast oh. on iTunes. Please That's rate it too. Yeah. I need those ratings for my ego. Okay. Live from, from University Park. This <laughs> okay, actually, can we cut this off? Yeah, yeah, yeah.